Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, coming to you from the Coming Home Network International. And you're hearing us over EWTN Radio, and it's a great privilege to be able to do that. And uh, if you're listening, you also maybe would like to know that you could go on the internet, uh, chnetwork.org, and actually watch the program. Today, our guest is joining us uh, through the uh, the great technology. Uh, he's not here in the studio with me, but he's uh, I'm able to talk with him uh, over the internet. Hello, Roy, you there? Hi, yeah, I'm here and very happy to be here. Our guest today is Roy Schumann, and Roy is a Jewish convert. Put the convert in, quest- in quotation marks because I think Roy, his perspective, which is very important for us all to hear, emphasizes the, the continuity of the journey in obedience to our Lord Jesus, following him uh, in the uh, the people of God, in the church. And uh, that's a, a little background. If you were have been watching EWTN, you may have seen the Journey Home program on Monday night, in which uh, we were able to feature a panel from a recent Deep in History conference. And Roy was a part of that a panel as well as the conference well received and uh, if any of you are interested you could go to chnetwork.org and uh, contact the uh, uh, us to find out how to get the talks from that conference as well as EWTN you can get the uh, replay of that program on the journey home but I wanted to fill you in a little bit on Roy's background in case you didn't hear the program Monday night Roy was born outside New York City to Jewish parents who had fled Nazi Germany Roy received his Jewish education and formation under some of the most prominent rabbis in contemporary American Jewry. He went to college at MIT and then Harvard Business School, where he received an MBA, magna cum laude, a Baker Scholar, and joined the faculty as a professor of marketing. Midway through his teaching career, Roy received the grace of two spiritual experiences that resulted in his totally unanticipated and enthusiastic conversion to Christianity. He became active in Catholic evangelization, hosting a Catholic television program, writing for Catholic periodicals, and pursuing theological studies. His first book, Salvation is from the Jews, The Role of Judaism in Salvation History, which was published by Ignatius Press in 2003, became a surprise bestseller, followed soon after by Honey from the Rock, 16 Jews Find the Sweetness of Christ, and that was published in 2007, also by Ignatius and I want to point to his website, www.salvationisfromthejews, that's one word, .com. And there's a lot on the website, some of his articles, his conversion story, um, and I would strongly encourage you to contact Roy about this important issue. In fact, Roy, you mentioned in your bio that you are yourself a son of parents who had to flee Nazi Germany. And Roy, we're at a time where a lot of those that have that firsthand experience are, there aren't as many with us anymore. Um, Is that, are we keeping the message up anyway about the travesty and how we can learn and move forward in a positive way? I think so. And I think, uh, speaking as a, as a Catholic, especially in the context of the Catholic Church, um, the attitude and actions of the last two popes, John Paul II and, and Benedict XVI, are virtually unprecedented in, in 2,000 years of Church history, uh, how, uh, both how deeply they responded to the anti-Semitism that culminated in the in the Holocaust, and also how positively they have spoken about Jews and Judaism, it's it's really a sea change, and I think it's is basically it's a, a tremendously beneficial um, you, know, you know side effect of the tragedy. Yeah, and I I think I've come to appreciate the Jewish roots of my of our Christian faith. Uh, far more since becoming a Catholic than I appreciated it when I was an evangelical. I was always cognizant of the of the continuity, but I think as a Catholic. And before we get into the text and, and, and other questions, 
Roy, something that has struck me, particularly the last couple of years, is the a, a key aspect of our salvation that we as Christians inherited, if we would, if you would, from our Jewish uh, uh, forefathers, is that we are saved not as individuals but we are saved as faithful individuals as a part of the family. And both are important. There's a tendency today in evangelicalism to only emphasize individualism. Jesus and me, regardless of any connection to a church. And of course, there's the other extreme, which is what we find in Marxism and others where it's only the group the individual is not important, those two extremes. But I think one of the keys that we have received from our Jewish heritage all the way through the continuity of the church and then Judeo-Christian history is this importance of the both and as faithful individuals as a part of the family. Would you agree with that, Roy? Uh, I would agree with that with the um, additional slant that the corporate membership in as one of the Jewish people was more, more important for salvation under the old covenant than under the new covenant. Uh-huh. And actually the teaching within Judaism is that, that it uh, among the Jewish people that actually results in the salvation of the individual Jew, uh, much more so than, than his individual behavior. In fact, um, Maimonides, there's a passage in Maimonides which says essentially that a uh, Jew could commit every sin in the book, but as long as he's not cut off from the Jewish people, he still has a share in the world to come. Uh-huh. So that corporate identity is more important in Judaism, I suspect, than it is in Christianity. Well, the the reason I've come to see that in my own journey is uh, if you take a, a psalm like, I think, Psalm 15, for example, if I'm remembering, where it asks, what must I do to... Um, you know, to, uh, to climb the mountain of the Lord. I think that's the way it goes. What's, who shall sojourn in the tent? Who shall dwell on your holy mountain? And it basically says, walk blamelessly and do what is right and speak truth from the heart. Uh, another psalm like that says, if you have clean hands and a, and a pure heart. And it, it, if taken at face value, it almost sounds like the verse is saying, all that's necessary is a holy life. But what's not expressed uh, overtly in the psalm is the assumption that the psalmist and the, and the listener are Jews. You know what I'm saying? That, that there's an mm-hmm. assumption that they're a part of the family. They're still called to live a holy life, a conversion of heart, to obey the covenant, to be circumcised in all the aspects of being a part of the family. But the psalm could be misunderstood by evangelicals to imply that all that was necessary was the individual works. It's like taking John 3.16 and say all that's necessary is to believe in Jesus, whereas, in fact, the assumption behind the entire New Testament is the church as the continuity of the family of God. So mm-hmm. there's this both-and, individual and corporate. But I, you know, I'm not disagreeing with you that I think there was this uh, interesting aspect of being a Jew, as a part of the family, as the ultimate importance in the Old Testament. Well, the the whole um, the whole relationship between the individual and salvation uh, was somewhat different. I don't want to launch in too much to right. it, perhaps, but but the um, the obvious my my entire orientation is that is that sal- you know salvation history as a whole from from uh, Adam until the second coming, and the relationship between God and man um, changed with the Incarnation, and that Judaism was like phase one of salvation history, and the Church is phase two of salvation history, and the the, uh, nature of salvation in phase one, and the the role of the Jews was much more about um, maintaining their ethnic identity, being Jewish, so that they could prepare for the incarnation, and that was really the number one task. And then once the incarnation took place, the the relationship between man and God really changed, and it became in some sense a little bit more individual rather than how corporate it was in Judaism. All right. I, 
again, those of you listening, this is Roy Schumann, and uh, he has a, a website, salvationisfromthejews.com. I strongly encourage you to, um, to connect with that, and also his book, Salvation is from the Jews, The Role of Judaism and Salvation Henry. We, we've kind of started on, on our path of our discussion, Roy, because um, a lot of Christians uh, do not uh, understand or appreciate or take into valid account the, the relationship of Judaism to our Christian faith. Yes, and and you you spoke earlier in the show about um, my my parents being yeah. Holocaust refugees and and the change in the you know attitude between the the church and Judaism that in part resulted from the Holocaust, and I think that may not be a bad place to start because sure. there has there has been this theology, uh, one of the theologies within Christianity over the last 2,000 years, which is usually referred to as supersessionism. And the question is, okay, the Jews were the chosen people in the Old Testament, that's clear. Um, they, by and large, rejected Christ when he came, that's clear. Where does that leave their role as the chosen people? Has it been removed from them, and all of the promises made to the Jews shifted to the Church, and there's absolutely no value or even a negative value to Jewish identity, given their failure to recognize Christ. And that's, one can call that supersessionism, referring to the fact that the promises were superseded by the Church, that Judaism was superseded by the Church. Or is there still a mysterious aspect in which are the chosen people, even in this period between the first and second coming of Christ? Now, this supersessionism theory, is this... uh, uh, a view that um, uh, is found in all Christian traditions, or is this more Protestant or more dispensationalist, or is it also in the Catholic uh, historical view towards the Jews? Um, it, it, it's been a problem. Basically, it's been a problem from the first century. Okay, and it's 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 been there in different forms in 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 every you know, context in which Christianity appears. Uh, it was a very hot topic, of course, by the Church Fathers in the first couple of centuries because they were much more aware yeah. of the Jewish roots of the Church, so to speak. And they were surrounded by Jews, you know, they were in a state mm-hmm. of warfare in some sense, you know, the Jewish community and the Christian community. So they really had a struggle with what do we do with this. And um, it's it's permeated uh, Christian theology, both in the Protestant stream in the last 500 years and in the in the Catholic stream of the last uh, 1900 years or whatever. Well, I mean, sadly, uh, in some sense, we become almost limited or at least cautious when we're encouraging people to read books that were written 150 years ago because on the one hand, though they may be great books of theology and even by great people, yet some of this anti-Semitism seems to always be rising to the top even among some of our great writers of the faith 150 years ago. Yes, but but the whole uh, there, there's a kind of uh, double-edged sword, both in this concept of anti-Semitism and also in the concept of supersessionism. And if I may, I'd like to start with the supersessionism, which sure. is that um, clearly the sacramental means of salvation that was given to the Jews in the Old Testament has been superseded by the Church. We no longer have animal sacrifices in the temple, right. the blood of which washes away sin. That truly has been superseded by the <laughs> blood of Christ on the cross. Uh, so to, to make sense out of the whole issue of supersessionism, you have to separate out the, the sacramental means of salvation of the Jews in the Old Testament, which has been superseded by the Church, and the election of the Jews as somehow playing a special ethnic role in salvation history. And the truth is, the sacramental system has been superseded. The election of the Jews has not been superseded, and we'll see that in black and white when we go through Romans 11. Similarly, when you look at anti-Semitism, I mean, one has to, um, I mean, the the bad kind of anti-Semitism, of course, is having any aversion or distaste or contempt or, um, you know, sense right. of depravity about the Jewish people. But I don't want to say there's a right form of supersessionism, but the, uh, anti-Semitism, but there's also the fact that the Jews are, in some sense, fun- there's obviously fundamentally wrong about who Jesus was. And in some sense, they're even kind of wrong about w- what God wants Judaism to be, in some sense, hmm. because obviously God 
wants the Jews on some level yeah. to have recognized Jesus as the Messiah and to recognize him as the Messiah. So it's not anti-Semitic to say that the Jews are somehow at a, you know, they're, 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 they're suffering a loss by not being Christian. That's not anti-Semitic, right? If no. you're Christian, you have to believe that they're suffering some kind of a loss by not being Christian. Well, and in fact, I would say as a Catholic that our separated brethren are suffering a loss because they're not a part of the fullness. That's not anti-Protestant or, or, or anti-non-Catholic. That's just proclaiming the reality of the beauty of the truth of the fullness of the faith, which we want for anyone outside the church to, to experience the graces of the church, the graces of Christ. And uh, I suppose this brings us as a good entry into the scripture you want us to look at because Romans 11, it's a long chapter, but an important one, important one. You know, Roy, when I was a, a Presbyterian pastor, I didn't have to follow a, a common lectionary. I could choose what I wanted to choose on Sunday to preach about. And, you know, sometimes I would preach through an entire book of the New Testament. Other times I would choose, sometimes I would choose scriptures because of what I thought the congregation needed to hear, or maybe what I was myself being motivated to study. But uh, i be honest with you, I never preached on Romans 11. And I'm wondering if it's because a lot, especially those outside the church, are not sure what, how to respond to what Paul was saying in Romans 11 in today's context. I think Romans 11 is absolutely invaluable because it's the only place where the basic meaning of Jewish identity between the first and second comings of Christ is laid out where it's actually explained what's going on with the interplay between Jew and Gentile in the period between the first and second coming. He's writing, well, maybe give a background for our audience of this whole chapter, because you know, basically this is Paul, who's the missionary to the Gentiles, is essentially writing a letter to mostly Gentiles in Rome. I'm assuming that's the context. Uh, it's it's in the words that he's addressing Gentiles, and he's trying to tell the Gentiles, I, I mean, in some sense, it's better when we go through it, but he's sure. saying, don't have contempt for the Jews. Don't, um, you know, don't lord it over the Jews, because you are where you are because of them, and God, in fact, has not rejected them. But he has uh, allowed their falling away precisely to enable salvation to come properly to the Gentiles. Well, the, the chapter begins with the statement, Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So that's how it begins. So Roy, why don't you lead us into the study? Because this is so key to your sure. whole life. And I don't want to in any way take us off on another tangent, but you go ahead and lead us through this. Sure. Uh, the next verse is, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So you have a flat statement that the Jews have not been rejected despite their rejection of Christ. But then Paul goes on to explain this mystery, what's going on with their rejection of Christ. And I'll pick it up again in verse 7. Okay. Paul says, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it sought. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear, down to this very day. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. So uh, let me just kind of re sure. repeat that. The, uh, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear. In other words, the failure of uh, the Jews as a corporate body to accept Christ wasn't only due to their own stubbornness and hard-heartedness, but was a mysterious part of divine providence. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. So somehow God, I mean, I know it's dangerous to say God wanted something or other, but in any case, clearly it was part of the plan of God that the Jews should, by and large, reject Jesus. And then St. Paul goes on to talk well, about let why me, God let me arranged things this way. Let me just throw in there that that's, um, I mean, Roy, that is a great point, because we see that mystery of God's plan, his will, throughout Scripture. We see where it says Pharaoh, you know, God hardened his heart, you know, and that almost takes away Pharaoh's guilt. But no. He chose. So there's the mystery there. We also see it in the words of Christ 
a number of occasions. In fact, I'm, I'm having our time to find it real quick here, but the parable of the sower. You know, he talks about, you know, them not being able to hear or to see lest they respond. I mean, isn't that also pointing to the same thing you're talking about, Roy, the mystery of God's acting in his plans for knowledge, but also being actively involved in the choices that the Jews are making in response to Christ? Yes, and and it can be morally distressing in a sense, but we know the bottom line is all things work together for the good for those who love God. So right. we know that even though in the short term it may look like God's being kind of unfair, in the long term we know that's not the case. He's doing what's best in his wisdom He's doing for what's those best. people. That's right. All right. Go ahead, right? Okay, sure. Uh, so St. Paul continues. This is now verse 11. So I ask, have they stumbled so as to fall? By no means, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So let me go back to the beginning of that, that paragraph. Have they stumbled so as to fall? By no means, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. In other words, if the Jews had not failed to recognize Jesus, had they not trespassed, had they all recognized Jesus, if you excuse the pun wholesale, salvation would not have come properly to the Gentiles. Now, we see what was going on there in, um, in Acts 15, that in fact, um, the very first crisis in the church, right, described yep. in Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem, you know, what was the burning issue that had to be resolved? Are we allowed to let Gentiles into the church? Yeah, or is yeah. the church only for Jews? So you can see how if, in fact, for the first few hundred years, if all the Jews had entered the church and the first five million Christians had been Jews, how much more would it have looked like the church is only for Jews? You know, again, that that uh, mystery of, of, of God's, the way he works out his plan, always for the good, Yet, from our human perspective, it may not at times seem fair. I mean, we can even see that in Judas himself. I mean, Judas's choice to, uh, you know, to betray our Lord was yet necessary in the plan of salvation. And, but it was a free choice, but yet in God's will, it was what happened. And so, if we bring that to our own selves, we... We can look at things happening in our own lives and wonder, why did that happen, Lord? Where were you? Why me? All those questions we ask. But it leads us back to trust. No, God is in control. God knows exactly our lives. He knows what's best for us. Our, our response has always been called to love, to have faith, to reach out. So uh, in terms of this context with the Jews, those that have misinterpreted this, they basically say, see, it was their trespass, and so we turn our backs on them rather than recognizing them as the chosen of God and our response to always share the gospel with those that received it first, even though they rejected it. Uh, uh, St. Paul goes on and, and addresses exactly that. He says, um, uh, you know, if you're one of the Gentiles grafted into the church, don't boast over the Jews, because remember, <laughs> it's the root that supports you and not you the that support the root, but we haven't gone to that passage that's yet, fine. but it's in the same chapter. Okay. Uh, I pulled you ahead a little bit. Okay. Uh, yeah. But let me, uh, so go back to that 11 sure. uh, and, and thereafter. So we see how um, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And then Paul said, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So look, I mean, he's, he's talking to the Gentiles, as you pointed out, and he's saying, if their failure to follow Christ <laughs> meant riches for you guys, how much more will their eventually following Christ mean for you? Uh, and then he goes on, and this is verse 15, and says, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Um, uh, and uh, if some of the, uh, then he goes on to the image of the olive tree, and this is what I was alluding to a moment ago. We'll pause. Uh, he compares salvation Okay. Yeah, let's pause there because we've got to take a break and I'll pick up right there when we come back. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Roy Schumann. And you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network.
Get an insider's look at the latest information from EWTN. Sign up for WINGS, EWTN's weekly email newsletter. Get the latest information about live events, special features, and guests. Connect with EWTN on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Just go to EWTN.com and click on the WINGS link to sign up. Don't miss a minute of all that's happening at EWTN. Get your WINGS today. Hi, this is Jerry Usher reminding you to listen to Vocation Boom Radio Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern exclusively on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Each week I bring you dynamic interviews with bishops, priests, vocation directors, even seminarians and those who support them, all in an effort to assist the Holy Spirit in what is truly a vocation boom around the world. That's Vocation Boom Radio Saturdays at 5 p.m. Eastern only on EWTN Radio. CH Resources is excited to offer you Marcus Grody's latest book, Thoughts for the Journey Home. If you're not Catholic but are looking seriously at the Catholic Church, or if you've recently entered the Church, this book will provide you with wisdom and encouragement for the journey. And if you're a lifelong Catholic, it makes a great gift for family and friends you're hoping will come home. To order a copy, visit our website at chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Roy Schumann. Um, and I want to point out again his website, salvationisfromthejews.com. Roy, I, I went to your website during the break, and uh, something I saw, there's a lot of good stuff on your website, but I clicked on the, the prayer for Jewish conversion from the First Vatican Council in 1870. And I found that quite amazing because it seems, number one, to show that, that the church's positive view towards our Jewish brothers and sisters. Number two, it did talk about a very positive encouragement to continue sharing the gospel. But number three, it's sad to think that this was the view, this was the positive view, and yet to think what then happened 50 years later, 60 years later, 70 years later in, uh, in Europe. Um, that it's too bad more of us didn't pray this prayer. Yeah, that's that that's um, that's right. It was very very beautiful the the um, outreach of love towards the Jewish people that was expressed by the um, hierarchy of the church in that prayer. Yeah, I mean I think it's an important prayer, and I'd encourage all of you to go to his website and just look at that, and for us to be praying for that. And of course, uh, you know, the core of our Christian faith is is uh, love of God the Father and love for one another. I mean, that's what we're called to do, you know, through our Lord Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's what we're called to do. All right, Roy, uh, you have so much to say on this passage. I always feel like I distract us a bit uh, because I, I want to make sure you have your opportunity to talk on because it is very important, Roy, what you want to say from Romans 11. Are you there, my friend? Uh, yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, now I can. Okay. I lost for a um, yeah. where, we, where we broke was uh, when Paul introduces his metaphor of the olive tree. So salvation consists of this um, tree with its, its roots in the ground and branches above the ground. And he, he says, um, he's, he's speaking to the Gentiles. And if he says, uh, if some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the richness of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. In other words, this olive tree of salvation was, was Judaism and was rooted in Judaism. The Jews were these some of the branches of that original cultivated olive tree, which were broken off. And while branches were grafted in, who were the Gentiles who were grafted into the church, but addressing the Gentiles, if 
some of the branches were broken off and new wild olive shoot were grafted in their place to share the richness of the olive tree. In other words, to share the richness of salvation, which was originally brought by the Jews. Do not boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember, it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. And if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. And even the others, if they do not persist in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you have been cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? So in a sense, this is the whole story, right? That, that this, this tree of salvation was originally Judaism. Some branches were broken off, which was the Jews who failed to enter the church, but they were only broken off to make room to graft in wild olive branches, which were the Gentiles. And if you're one of those grafted in wild olive branches, don't boast over the broken off original olive branches, because God has the power to graft them in again. And when he does, how much better will they be suited to the tree, because they were originally a part of it. The, the phrase... Well, maybe I should let you keep going because we're going to talk about the uh, inclusion of the full number of the Jews. Why don't you go on yeah. with that? Because that's an important, okay. controversial right. passage. Because because uh, right after St. Paul explains this, he goes into an explanation of why God arranged things this way. And he continues, this is now verse 25, Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brethren. A hardening has come upon part of Israel— until the full number of the Gentiles come in, and so all Israel will be saved. So going back there, a hardening has come upon part of Israel. This is their blindness, this is their ears I cannot hear, and so forth, until the full number of the Gentiles come in. In other words, to make room for the full number of the Gentiles to come in, to wait until all, the full number of the Gentiles come in, the gospel having been preached to the whole earth, and all of the tribes and nations of the earth who were going to, come into the church, having come into the church, and then the veil will be lifted, and so all Israel will be saved. Yeah. And so we have this concept of the full number of the Gentiles coming in, but, um, you know, it would be nice to know more about what this means and what this refers to and what this has to do with the second coming and so forth, and we see that in another passage of Scripture, which is in uh, Luke 21, which is a prophecy that Jesus makes uh, himself, and it's shortly before the crucifixion, mm -hmm. and he is describing the fall of Jerusalem that's about to come, and this, this dispersal of the Jews, and then goes into a description of the second coming, and he uses uh, uh, the same concept, the same phrase of the full number of the Gentiles coming in, or the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled. So um, I'll just read those like four verses, and then I'll... And then I'll Clam up for a moment. Oh, no, go um, ahead. This, okay. So this is Jesus speaking in uh, Luke 21. He says, uh, starting with verse 24, the, uh, the Jews will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So we see that phrase again. And then he immediately goes into a description of the second coming. This is verse 25. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and upon the earth distress of nations and perplexity of the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So here, Jesus himself is laying out a timeline. The Jews will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. Literally fulfilled in 70 AD, right. Jerusalem fell by the edge of the sword to the Romans. The Jews were led away in slavery, captive among all nations. Then Jesus continues, and Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Again, literally fulfilled from that point on, and even more so from um, the second fall of Jerusalem in 130 AD, Jerusalem was trodden down by the Gentiles, in other words, held by, in Gentile hands, continually from that point until 1967 AD, when for the first time in almost 2,000 years, Jerusalem returned to Jewish hands. And um, Jesus associates this with the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled 
and immediately goes into a description of the second coming. So it looks like you have this timeline, which has Jerusalem will fall, the Jews will be dispersed, Jerusalem will be held in Gentile hands until pretty much the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, and the Jews will return to Jerusalem, and the times of the Gentiles will have been fulfilled, and we know from Romans 11 at that point there will be this conversion of the Jews, the veil will be lifted from the eyes of the Jews, and they too will come into the church, and then we have the second coming. As and uh, go ahead. I was going to say that there are many different Christian traditions that have a uh, an interpretation of what this reinstatement of the nation of Israel means now, as you know, in other words, a very uh, heightened anticipation of the second coming of Christ because of the the nation of Israel now. I, uh, as a matter of fact, when, when it happened in, in 1948, when yeah. the state of Israel was founded, right. um, basically every, every newspaper article, every preacher in every Christian denomination saw the eschatological implications of it. Right. Um, as, as we got used to the idea of the nation of Israel, that's, that's kind of really faded in many denominations and, and certainly in the Catholic Church. Well, the, those that are particularly of the rapture bent... Uh, you know, are expecting any any time now uh, that the church will be pulled away, and, and then it'll be this time of of uh, you know a thousand years of of, of of struggle, and and of course that that particular view of the rapture is not one that that can hold water. But on the other hand, I mean, Roy, what do we? How do we understand our present place in salvation history, given this uh, the the nation of Israel? I mean, do you see this? as in fact the, the fulfillment of what Christ was pointing to, or, uh, and so that we're living in a, a different age as a result of the reestablishment of Israel? Um, I mean, this, uh, as a Catholic, we're, we've now entered the realm of speculation. Right. right? I mean, I there's, no, there's no dogma, and, and uh, all I can do is speculate and express my personal speculation or opinion. But I, I personally do think that the founding of the state of Israel, the return of the Jews to Jerusalem and to Israel, it does have eschatological implications, that in fact the Holocaust itself to yeah. me is a key to understanding this mystery, because um, you said earlier, you know, what a tragedy is that we let that happen, or that the world let that happen, there's no question about that. Yeah. But um, you see this huge thing, I don't think I mean, you can't take the Old Testament seriously and not see a kind of um, a spiritual implication to what happens to the Jewish people over right. time. I, I don't see how you can read the Old Testament seriously and not see that there will be a, a mysterious role of, of Judaism in the Second Coming, of the Jews in the Second Coming, that there will be a return in some sense to whatever it means, but a return to Israel that precedes the Second Coming. So I, I, I can't really separate them. And then I look at the, the Holocaust and I say, what's going on here? Because here we have this impulse that came straight from hell, which is easy to see that, that Hitler and the impulse behind exterminating the Jews was a direct expression of the satanic will. The chief exorcist of Rome, Father Gabriel Amorth, said, without a doubt, Hitler was personally consecrated to Satan. He was an occultist. He was, a, in some sense, a Satanist. Um, you have this, this impulse of the devil to exterminate the Jews. Why should the devil, all of a sudden, after you know, 1,500 years, launch this like unprecedented um, attempt to exterminate the Jews? And I actually think it's because he knew his time was short. He knew that... The second coming can't happen unless there's a conversion of the Jews. He knows scripture, right? We know that from the temptation in the desert. Um, and, you know, I see the Holocaust as the devil's, like, last-ditch attempt to abort the second coming by exterminating the Jews. Now, you had mentioned earlier in the program that there seems to be in the Old Testament a, um, a higher emphasis on being a member of the corporate body of, of, of Judaism, for salvation, over and above being an individual yes. in that, whereas in the, the I don't I hate, I'm hesitant to use the word dispensation because that has a technical term among certain Christians, but in the New Testament, uh, as a result of our Lord Jesus, that it, the, the switch moves a bit more on on individual responsibility, but yet still is a part of the church, part of the body of Christ. 
not an individual relationship with Christ, but individual relationship with his body. In this passage in Romans 11, there's that strong section that talks about the fullness of the Jews. You know, a hardening has come upon the person until the full number of the Gentiles come in, and so all Israel will be saved. This phrase, all Israel will be saved, has had a variety of, of interpretations. Earlier, it talks about the, the warning on the Gentiles that even though they're grafted in, they can be grafted out again dependent on their obedience. Is that not still true for every individual Jew as they look to the future in relationship with God? Yeah, I, 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 undoubtedly, um, I do not understand the mystery behind that phrase, all right. Israel will be saved. Um, what does it mean? Uh, it's, it's from the church fathers on, they've seen it as unambiguously meaning a very widespread uh, entry of Jews into the church, but I, uh, you know, it's hard to see it as meaning universal. Every, right. every individual Jew will be saved. I've, uh, and again, I've heard it preached that way, but as a result of seeing it that way, then almost a rejection of, of Romans 11 because of uh, the confusion with that. But there's a sense in which Israel also can mean the church, also in the symbolic, uh, not symbolic, but, but the spiritual understanding of the typology of. But that is. Uh, but it's harder to do that when it's in a sentence where it's contrasted with the Gentiles. Right. No, you're exactly right. right. And I, I'm glad you make that point. Because we want people to see what this passage really says, to not spiritualize it away or to not write it off into universalism, which leads us into confusion. It seems like for some, boy, the Jews are getting a special pass when these Christians have to be individually obedient. That's not the point here. It's it's really the point that the there's still always this... Um, opportunity for the chosen people of God to come home. Um, are we, it was sad to hear a couple years ago, uh, uh, sadly a Catholic leader was not speaking for the church, but basically said, ah, we don't need to reach out to the Jews anymore. Do you remember when that was said a couple years ago? I do. That's, uh, that's of course, the, the bread and butter of uh, part of the fight that I'm fighting. But, um, <laughs> I, you know, or at the very beginning of the show, you know, I kind of made a little gloss on anti-Semitism, saying it's not anti-Semitic to think that um, the greatest favor you can do to a Jew is bring them into the church, bring them to know Jesus. That's the opposite of anti-Semitic. That's the, the greatest act of charity that any individual, any Christian can do for anybody, is to bring them to know Jesus. Um, but from the uh, um, perspective of the Jewish community, as soon as there is an attempt at evangelization, they... Uh, throw up the the cloud of confusion calling that anti-semitism calling it anti-semitic to try to evangelize the jews or to even have a heart for the evangelization of the jews and um that has unfortunately polluted a little bit um you know it's it's it seeped its way in even into at times the uh, hierarchy of the church so that they're afraid of being anti-semitic so that they um, in that fear of being anti-Semitic, they shy away from sharing the gospel with yeah. Jews. Yeah, well, we live in a day where uh, tolerance has been the number one gospel. Um, or, you know, we again, this is a, a reminder that individuals in the church don't always speak for the church. And uh, there's also a leader in the church who denied the reality of the Holocaust. You know, that's not the position of the church. And so we've got to listen to what the church says, not necessarily what individuals say. Well, let's take another break. At least two things I'd like to talk about when we come back. Number one, what ought to be therefore our attitude to our Jew Jewish brothers and sisters. And number two, given all that you teach and, and believe about our roots, what difference should it make to our own appreciation of our faith? Let's talk about that when we come back. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Roy Schumann. And you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com.
The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are interested in learning more about our Catholic faith, or if you know someone who is interested in becoming Catholic, please visit our website at www.chnetwork.org or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi. I'm joined today by uh, Roy Schumann. It's a great privilege to have you on the program, Roy. Um, uh, and I, I apologize if I've taken us off on tangents that didn't give you the whole opportunity to express uh, your desire to communicate to our audience. But those two questions that I posed before the break, are those a good ones good ones for us to end with? Um, I think they're excellent, yeah. So first of all, yeah. how ought we understand and reach out to our, our Jewish brothers and sisters? Uh, f- first of all, how we should kind of feel about it sure. is that um, the, the, the Jews brought to the entire world, especially to the Gentile world, the greatest uh, gift of God that was ever given to humanity, which is the, you know, the incarnation of God as man, as yeah. the second person, the most holy trinity, it's salvation. You know, uh, uh, Jesus opened the doors to heaven. There was no entry into heaven before Jesus came. There was no Jesus without the Jews. Jesus was, in fact, a Jew, and all of, the, all of Judaism and the entire purpose of the Jewish people until 2,000 years ago was precisely to bring about the incarnation and to bring salvation to all of mankind. So the Gentile world basically owes the Jews... <laughs> you know, a, I mean, in some sense, you could say owes them a tremendous amount. You know, the Jews have done the greatest favor ever done to mankind by bringing the Savior. I'm, I like to say, isn't it time to return the favor? I mean, how can you be aware of this and then see the uh, their loss, just their subjective loss, I, even if you don't consider the implications for salvation, but just the, the happiness that they're depriving themselves of, the knowledge they're depriving themselves of, the, the fulfillment that they're depriving themselves of by not having a personal relationship with Jesus. I mean, you, your, your hearts must go out yeah. to want to give back to them what they brought to you. I'm thinking of the prayer that our Lord prayed from the cross for those that put him there. It seems like it's the same prayer we should be praying for our our Jewish brothers and sisters who, for whatever reason, their formation, they, they really... It's hard for them to understand the the gospel, maybe to hear it because of what they've experienced as a people. And so we need to be praying in a loving way that God forgive them and open the, their hearts and minds to the fullness of the faith. That's right. And, and in terms of how to do that, I certainly yeah. agree with um, the... The, the, the sense of our, our culture today that you don't want to beat them over the head and say, um, you know, frankly, you know, threaten them with the loss of salvation or right. accuse them of having, um, you know, be de- of deicide, you know, of having killed God or anything. But what you do want to do is share your faith with them. In other words, let them know, A, what your relationship with Jesus means to you, the fact that all all of life is different because of the the sense of security and love that you have in in knowing Jesus personally, and and um, um, just just let them know what you have that out of the generosity of your heart you would like to share with them or you would like to see them have. And the other side of that is also let them know the honor and glory and importance of Judaism in the eyes of the church, in the eyes of Christians, in the eyes of Catholics. Because when I was growing up, I thought that Christians had contempt for Jews. You know, I was coming out of this kind of Holocaust mentality Hmm. that Christians hate Jews, that Christians would like to see all the Jews dead, that Christians think there's this um, irredeemable depravity to Jews and so forth, and nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, I mean, Christians have to acknowledge that Jesus was Jewish. They have to acknowledge that the one time God became man, he became a Jew. You know, Catholics who have this tremendous love for the apostles and St. Peter and above all the Blessed Virgin Mary have to acknowledge that they're Jews. You know, 
let Jews know the the honor and glory and importance that is is Judaism and Jews are truly viewed in in the eyes of the church so that instead of being afraid of approaching Christianity it'll actually appeal a little bit to their Jewish pride which is why I call my book Salvation is from the Jews was to let Jewish chauvinism lead people towards the church rather than keep them away from the church I'm Saint Ignatius go ahead I was just going to say, I think that, uh, you know, uh, blessed John Paul, of course, is known for many, many things. But one of the things he's meant, uh, he's remembered for is the humility that he demonstrated at that one point in his uh, uh, leadership when he apologized for the way that Catholics, Catholic individuals has have treated other people and one of those apologies was the way that Catholics had treated our Jewish brothers and sisters. Absolutely. But he also said incredibly positive things about Jews and Judaism that have never been said before. He called the Jews our elder brothers in the, uh, yeah. in the faith. Yeah. He um, said, whoever meets Jesus Christ meets Judaism. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, he did he did more than any pope before him to illumine the the positive view of Judaism that the Catholic Church truly has. And I think I want to emphasize is that the views that you have, Roy, are not just your own views, but you're, these are very well paralleled in the Catechism of the Church, which means that this is the teaching of the Church. The um, the um, much of what I've said today is based on a paragraph in the New Catechism, paragraph six seventy four, which says, "quote." The glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition of by all Israel. Um, the full inclusion of the Jews in the Messiah's salvation in the wake of the full number of the Gentiles will enable the people of God to achieve the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ in which God may be all in all. So, yes, the, the Catechism teaches, A, that the Second Coming is suspended at every moment of history until the conversion of the Jews, which is one reason it's so important to you know, work towards the conversion of the Jews and pray for the conversion of the Jews, and that this final full inclusion of the Jews in the Church, after the full number of the Gentiles come in, will complete the Church, at that point being made of Jew and Gentile, and essentially make the Church ready for the Second Coming. Well, Roy, I want to remind the audience, time flies, and I want to remind them of your website and, and to thank you for your good work uh, on salvationisfromthejews.com. Those of you who are interested in this subject, you ought to be, uh, and what Roy does such a fine job bringing to our attention is things that we take for granted, and maybe some of the blind sides we have that we take for granted that need to be examined. But his website is full of great stuff, even dealing with with controversial issues, but important issues in issues of eugenics, which has become so much a part of our culture, which even now as we speak, we have the, the, Jew, the, the Catholic Church taking a stand on modern eugenics, which of course is abortion and contraception. So Roy, again, thank you for joining us on the program. Uh, it, it's a great pleasure. And uh, I you know, ask Lord's blessing on your work. Uh, and encourage the audience to check out your books and your website. Thank you all for joining us today. God bless you. See you again soon.